Thanks so much, Lucy, and uh, welcome, everyone. Good to see you on this really cold and miserable morning, but isn't it lovely to be in a, um, a nice, bright, warm place uh, with uh, with lovely company? Now, we're looking at Haggai today. Now, if I've worked, I looked at the pew bowls, and there's like 1,770 pages, and Haggai takes up two of them. So um, if, uh, if you couldn't find it, you're forgiven. It's on page 1,350, okay? So if you've got a pew Bible with you and you're going, oh, I've given up, I'm just going to listen, 1,350 is the page that you need to turn to. Um, but what will also help us, apart from having the Bible in front of you, is God's help. And so uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all of the things that you give to us. We do thank you um, for shelter. We thank you for warmth. Um, we are conscious that there are many, many, many people in this world that do not have either. And so we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for technology that enables us to be able to participate even if we're not here. Um, but we thank you especially for your word. We thank you that you speak to us and you have done for centuries and millennia. And uh, we pray that we would learn more about you and more about ourselves this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, scientifically, inertia is the resistance of any physical object to a change in its velocity. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? In other words, it just keeps going however it has been going. That's what inertia is. Same speed, same direction. It doesn't slow down, it doesn't speed up, it doesn't change direction. That's inertia. But we often use that term metaphorically, don't we? You sometimes use um, inertia to talk about life. We use it to describe a sense of monotony, of a dissatisfying unchangingness to our circumstances, a lack of progress, a lack of development. And so that's where the Latin word that inertia comes from seems particularly appropriate because it's the word for sluggish or idle when your career is going nowhere, inertia. When your relationships settle into a monotonous groove, inertia. When something exciting's happened and then it's over and then life just goes back into its old groove again, that's inertia. When your New Year's resolutions or the exciting new dreams you have and initiatives don't ever actually seem to translate into any real change, and things fall back to what they always were, inertia. And of course, that can describe as well our spiritual lives too, can't it? You know, for some who would not say that they yet know God, it might be that there is this uh, inner longing in them, that, that there is more to life than just eat, sleep, earn, buy, relate, repeat until you die. But it's hard to break into that cycle of the everyday to make space to actually find out who God is and what he's like. Or maybe it's a searching that has not yet led to anywhere yet and, and so continues on. But it can also be the same for those who already know God through Jesus. You know, our Christian lives can sometimes get like that too, can't they? You see, most of us who are Christians understand what is important we know that following Jesus needs to be the number one priority in our life. He's God after all. 
And we know that God's way is good and that real growth is possible and indeed, as we've been reminded uh, in our Fruit of the Spirit series, it's actually inevitable because God's going to bring it about. He's at work in us. But at various points in time, is this not true, that, that translating that knowledge into action can often be a struggle for us? A struggle against our self-centred world and a struggle, if we're being honest, against our self-centred selves. There seems to be this frustrating hesitance for our intentions to translate into actions. So what's, what's the answer to that? that? That sort of sense of frustrating and damaging inertia? Well, that's what we're going to discover as we look at the first chapter of the book of Haggai. Because you see, that's not new. Life's always been like that. And it's always been like that for God's people and everybody else as well. On the first day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius of Persia. We can be more precise than that, the 29th of August, 520 BC. God had something to say to the Jews and their leaders about putting their intentions into action. Now, Haggai is probably not the book that you've most read in the Bible, although if you're trying to If you just took the Bible's 66 books and are trying to chalk them off to feel like you've achieved something, it's a great place to start because you're over in five minutes, right? But um, it's not probably the first one that you've read and so it would probably help if I gave you a bit of context for it. Now, the following chart on the screen gives you the basic timeline of the story of God's people in the promised land of Israel. And Haggai, you'll notice there, is located towards the far right end of that chart. See, the glory days of Israel are well behind them. As a people, they descended into idolatry and wickedness in those periods before that second red mark of the exile. And so despite the warnings of countless prophets through all of those kingdoms and the time of the judges, they didn't change. And so they were punished by God and saying, well, you're not going to stay in the land. I'm going to send you off into exile in Babylon. But I'll let the Bible tell you the next part of the story. Uh, Turn with me to the first four verses of Ezra. We'll have a look on the screen up above. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Well, that's a good sign, isn't it? That life seems for the Israelites to at last be on the up. If you've got the book of Jeremiah ringing through your head from a, a year ago, you'll go, isn't this nice? <laughs> um, they're, they're finally getting the good stuff. After their long and humiliating time in exile, the Israelites were finally coming home. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, God promised that the exile that began in 606 BC, when Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity, would finish after a period of 70 years. Sure enough, exactly 70 years later, 
in 536 BC, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, they're sent home. And they're sent by Cyrus, did you notice this, for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Did you notice that part? In fact, we read in Isaiah 44 that God called Cyrus by name for this very purpose, well before Cyrus had even been born, before exile even looked to be on the cards or for certain. Have a look at these verses from Isaiah 44. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers and who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt and of their ruins, I will restore them. And who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. That's impressive, isn't it? You know, this is no vague horoscope prediction. Sometime in the future, you'll come across someone who will do something that will make you feel better. This is prophecy from a hundred years before a guy was born calling him by name. But back to the matter at hand. What we need to notice is this. God had worked world events so that his exiled people would return to the land that he'd promised them. He wasn't going to break his promise. He brings them back and he equips them to rebuild his temple at the very time that he had foretold that they would return with the assistance of the very king that he called by name to bring that all about. So that once more they could live as God's people in the land that God had given them under his rule, in the sight of all the nations. A wayward people restored, right? So they had one job to do. Cyrus had brought everything that they had and said, here you go, go do it. But now in the book of Haggai, 16 years after their return, God has got this to say. Have a look at verse 2 of Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. So 16 years later and there's still no temple. So what have they been doing all of that time? Remember what Cyrus had given them and why he gave it to them? What have they been doing? Well, before we write them off as being unfaithful slackers, we need to appreciate that their situation wasn't simple, right? If you think moving house is hard, try moving countries. And I know there's people in this room that have done exactly that and it is not easy. What's more, they had no supermarkets to go get their food from. Many of their fields had grown over and been left untilled for 70 years. Now, that's a lot of weeding. Now, I haven't weeded the garden for about four months. Have a look at it. It's getting so bad that the wandering Jew has given up wandering. Imagine 70 years. In the meantime, others have settled in their lands. They were giving them a hard time. You can also read about that in the book of Ezra. And there was a lot of work to be done. 
they were vulnerable, they were relatively few in, in number. You'll hear the word remnant turn up through this chapter. A remnant means that's le- what's left over, right? We're not, we're not talking about a massive number of people here. These are the leftovers. The rest of them are dead. They were vulnerable, few in number, persecuted by their neighbours who certainly didn't want them to return to their previous strength and loved kicking them when they were down because they're they're historic enemies. Also, it's not as if they'd done nothing, right? Ezra tells us that one of the first things they did when they got back to the land was to build an altar so that sacrifices could begin again. And they'd return to celebrating the old festivals. So one thing you've got to get here is that the exiles that returned were not up to the old tricks of Israel. Right, they weren't, didn't go back to the worship of foreign gods that got them exiled in the first place. That lesson they learned. They were doing their bit. And they did have a lot of other stuff to work on. So you might imagine phrases like, well, we need to wait until our situations at home are a bit more settled before we go about rebuilding this temple. And we need a bit of time to get our stuff together. We need time to get stronger so we can stand up to our enemies and who don't want us to build the temple. So, so we'll do that first. We'll get to it in a while, later on, when the time's right. And 16 years later, nothing's been done. But it's this idea of time that God actually picks up when he challenges them. So have a look at verse 4. The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt, you say. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, do you see the challenge that he puts before them? He says, well, your houses are finished. You've rebuilt your homes. In fact, many of you have even started to do them up. You're renovating you're lining the stone walls with wood, making them pretty and comfortable. But this house, my house, the house of your God, is still a ruin. So 16 years before, they came with the intention of building the temple. They were even equipped by Cyrus himself with the provisions to do it. But still it wasn't done. The contrast between their houses that were being polished up and the temple of God was indicative of their priorities. It shows that investing their time and energies into seeing God honoured was going down in their yearly planners as a luxury to get round to sometime, not as an essential that must be done. Their priority had been securing their own comfort and security first. Until they had attained that to their satisfaction, their honouring of God would remain token and peripheral. And all of this under the veil of of a reasonable excuse. It's not yet time. The timing's not right. See, I'm sure they actually and genuinely believe that they intended to build the temple. One day they really meant to get around to it. But that intention hadn't translated into action for 16 years. And so that provokes a question for us to reflect upon too, doesn't it? And you're probably already there pondering it. Is God on the periphery of my life? Am I kind of treating him and his concerns like they're a luxury or is he in the centre? I mean, he's God, right? I mean, it's not hard to work out where he's meant to be. 
But where do his concerns and his interests and his glory rate when compared to my own? It's hard to look at Israel's situation here without starting to think about some similarities that can creep into our own approach to life, right? See, the temple served as a testimony of God's presence right in the middle of his people. It pointed to the fact that he was their God. What a privilege. And that they were his people. It was a place where people of all nations, wherever they would come from, could come and actually worship the true and living God. And yet his people had left it in a state of ruin. Now, of course, Jesus is the fulfilment of the temple, of what that was all about. Its ultimate purpose was actually to point us to Jesus. He is God actually, physically dwelling in the presence of his people. He's the embodiment of God's glory. And people of all nations, wherever they are in the world, actually can come to worship God through him. We see the end story of all of this. Now, I'm sure that many of you have um, noticed what's been highlighted in the, uh, in the papers this week, the latest census results that show that for the first time in Australian history, more people don't identify as Christians than do. Now, that means that a majority of Australians won't even nominally, just to the form of ticking a census form, actually honour Jesus. The God who became man and died on a cross to pay for their sins. The Saviour who rose again from the dead to conquer theirs and our greatest enemy, death, forever. And to hold out the promise of eternal life. The one before whom all humanity is actually going to stand and be judged at the end of time goes unacknowledged. And, and largely unknown, actually, by most of the people that you walk past in the street. And the reason, reason Jesus has actually commissioned his people, his church, to make him known to the world around us, that they might actually respond to him and honour him as he deserves, that they might actually get to know the God that they don't know, that they might come to love him, that they might come to glorify him as as we have come to do by his grace. But as easy is it not in the pressure of day-to-day life to forget all of this or to put it in the back of our minds while we're often busy panelling our houses? Not necessarily because we think God's kingdom doesn't matter, but just we've got other stuff going on, you know. We intend you know, to give of what God's given us for the work of the gospel and we intend to use our gifts to serve other people and we intend to apply ourselves to growing in our understanding and godliness and we intend to be people who are prayerful. We intend to go to church and have fellowship with our Christian brothers and sisters. We intend to share our faith with those who don't know Jesus. We all know about the intent and you know what often we do. I don't want to say otherwise, often we do. But the Christian life's a bit like this, isn't it? Sometimes you're humming and sometimes you're just not. Sometimes you're focused, sometimes you're asleep at the wheel because often we're not doing what we intend to do because things happen. We have the resources, we have the time, we have the talent, we have the relationships, we've even got the conviction. But like a redirected irrigation stream... 
we channel these God-given resources into our own fields for far too long. And we can leave the most important field, the kingdom of God, dried and parched of attention. We can neglect the cause of Christ, evangelism, mission. We can neglect the body of Christ, starving ourselves from fellowship, starving our brothers and sisters in Christ from our presence, withholding our ministry because we've got our own stuff to do. But in doing so, we don't realise that we're actually neglecting ourselves in the process as well. We're resisting the inner drawer of God's spirit within us and we become spiritually dry, as it were, dissatisfied, sluggish, or as Jesus might say, choked, when we could be flourishing. What's Jesus saying in Luke 8? The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries and riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So sometimes our spiritual inertia is the result of our own neglect of the things of God. So that's the danger, one of the dangers, of panelled houses. Now, the point of this isn't to make us feel guilty and turn our Christian life into some sort of sense of burdensome duty because you want to talk about inertia. That's inertia. Being weighed down by guilt and just feeling sorry and miserable. That's inertia. What it is to do is to make us think, to make us reflect upon our lives and how, what we're doing in them. Or as God says in verse 5 and again in verse 7, Twice, he says to the people of Judah, give careful thought to your ways, right? Reflect upon the patterns of your life. Well, back in Haggai chapter 1, God's not been sitting idly by as his people reject him and neglect him, right? God has always made it clear that his people should have no other gods before him. And as we know from our own materialistic society, a desire for security and material comfort can take our allegiance from God just as powerfully as any carved idol could. God is not going to put up with his people shutting him aside while they look after themselves. And so he gives them a prod. He takes action. Despite their efforts to secure everything for themselves, Israel's finding it's not getting anywhere. They're getting no comfort. They can never seem to get ahead. They're stuck in inertia and God now tells them why. Look at verse 5 and following. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse that's got holes in it. This is like the, the writer of Ecclesiastes talking about it's like chasing after the wind, isn't it? You try to grab hold of it and it just falls through your fingers. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. And why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. See, Israel was so fearful of their enemies and so eager to secure themselves materially that they forgot who their God was. Four times, verses 2, 5, 
7 and 9, Haggai reminds them that their God is the Lord Almighty. You you might remember from previous um, talks from the Old Testament, that's the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord of armies. He's the mighty ruler of all things. They're worried about their enemies, but who could protect them from their enemies? The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Um, They were worried about their daily needs, but who'd promised to look after his people and to bless them? The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Who determines if a crop fails or flourishes? Who decides if, when and where it will rain? The Lord Almighty. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and instead of turning to him, his people had neglected him while they tried to secure these things for themselves in their own strength. But it's worse than that. See, his people should have been the ones who were jealous for his name because he was their God, right? Yet they were content to let the place where his name dwelt, the temple, sit there as rubble in the sight of the world. God's telling them that their efforts are failing and are going to continue to fail to satisfy them until they build his house so that he might actually take delight in his people's worship and have his name glorified. You see, God's giving them a jolt, a wake-up call. He's saying, guys, honour me. As God's people, we need to take careful heed of this, I think. God doesn't want a people who go through the motions of religion. He wants people who seek first the kingdom of God, people who seek God's kingdom and seek it first. God's honour should actually concern us more than our own and not just in our intentions but actually in our actions, in our will. You know, the Lord Jesus leads the way in this and as he does in all matters of faith. He's the author and perfecter of what faith looks like. A lead that we should observe and follow and can follow because of what he's done. See, Jesus' concern was always for the will of his Father, wasn't it? His comforts and his safety always came second to doing the will of his Father, doing what his Father had sent him to do. Time and again, he shows his reliance on his Father as he labours and devotes himself to prayer. And he taught us to do the same. Just think about those well-known words from the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. The thing that he taught his disciples is the pattern for the way to pray. And what does he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And only then, after the big concerns of his heart and our hearts is put before God, the kingdom of God, his glory, his honour, only then do we say, and give us today our daily bread. Now provide us with our needs. We are seeking yours. You look after ours, please. But Jesus does not just model for us a kingdom, first mindset. Here's the thing about Jesus. He actually builds God's house himself. But that's what we're going to look at a bit more next week. Well, how did Israel respond? Well, now, if you remember Jeremiah from last year, you may recall the poor old Jeremiah was told, you need to preach my message, but let me tell you now that no one's going to listen to you. I'm going to make your head like flint because you're going to feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall. Well, Haggai had a far more positive response. In a beautifully refreshing change from the stubbornness that you're used to hearing about from the Israelites, they actually listened this time. They heard the message. 
But more than that, they translated the resolve that was probably already there and they put it into action. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. So refreshingly, Haggai is not a here-we-go-again story of, of Israel's failings. It just leaves us deflated as we think about our own failings and yada, yada. No, like the, like the tough love of a careful and attentive coach who tells the flagging, staggering athlete to get up off your backside and get running again and that the one who listens to the challenge of the coach can actually get up and do it. That, that, that's what we're seeing here. God was not some kind of cruel taskmaster judging his people from a distance, but is the kind and loving God who gets right in there with his people, with us. After all, that's the great symbolism of the temple, isn't it? God's right there, right there among you. I am with you. I'm not asking you to do something from a distance. I'm with you. And so as his people are spurred to respond, this message of comfort straight, comes straight after. Then Haggai, verse 13, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So three weeks after 16 years of doing nothing, three weeks after that first challenging rebuke, up goes the scaffolding and the building works are underway. Now, I said at the beginning of this talk that this passage would give us stuff to reflect on as we, as we think about how to escape the inertia that might creep into our Christian lives, in particular our spiritual lives. And here it is. Israel weren't high-handedly rebelling against God like they did before the exile. They just weren't going anywhere. God was coming second because of anxiety and insecurity and worldly priorities. Their panelled houses were the symptom. They weren't the disease. And the answer to this disease of worry, the cure for their spiritual inertia, was God resetting their perspective. God reminded them to wise up and not be blinded to capital R reality by the mere concerns of the day. With the judgment of exile being in the recent past, and visibly present in the ruined temple itself, they needed to rediscover a healthy fear and reverence of the Lord. Just to remember that he's God. So confronted by his word, reminded of his power and sovereignty, they recognised the awesome nature of their God and they went, what are we doing? Let's get on with things. Before this God... The worries of this world and the opposition that they might face from people around them just pales into insignificance. See, the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Reverencing God and understanding who he is and treating him properly is, is just the fountain of right action. It transports us from complacency and apathy to determined action. 
When you know God as he really is, you don't need to be told or you shouldn't need to be told something twice. And we recognise, as we recognise his holiness and his majesty and his power, his perfect wisdom, we gain perspective. We can, we can discern priority. And we get spurred on, empowered to obedience. And not in some sort of negative way out of terror, but in a way that's reminded that this fearsome, mighty God is our God. And he loves us. See, sometimes our perspectives need a reset. So can I say, if you're feeling a sense of spiritual inertia, can I suggest two things to you? Renounce and refocus. Renounce and refocus. It's like what you actually hear at a baptism service, you know, that you'll renounce the devil in his ways and the empty displays of this world. You say, that's not me. That's not what I'm living my life for. I'm renouncing it. Confess your neglect. Own up to it. Confess your distraction to your very gracious and very patient and very forgiving God and get back on your feet. Actually make the changes of habit and devotion that will enable you to reset your focus on the capital R reality of God and the destiny of this world. But also remember that he is the God who says to us, as he says to his people in verse 13, I am with you. The God we fear is the God who steadfastly loves us. And as he did to Zerubbabel, Joshua, the whole remnant in verse 14, he's the God who stirs up our spirits within us to do his work. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Stirs up our spirits. God is able to give us that strength, to give us that resolve and determination to actually carry out the task that he set before us. Isn't that what Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission? Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we know this in a way that the people of Zerubbabel's time never knew. It's what we've spent a whole term reflecting upon, that God has given us his own spirit to all who follow Jesus that empowers us to grow in love and fruitfulness. Friends, the answer to spiritual inertia is to delight in the fear of the Lord, in gazing on his majesty and living for him, resolving to put him first in your life and prayerfully calling on his spirit's help to put that resolve into action as you hear the charge of our faithful saviour. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Uh, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful graciousness to us in Jesus and we thank you that you're with us always to the very end of the age. Um, Father, for those of us that are not humming at the moment and wouldn't describe ourselves that way, who are perhaps experiencing spiritual inertia, please strengthen us empower us, fix our eyes on Jesus um, and help us get off our feet to cast off the sin that so easily entangles and pursue the path that you have made out for us, for your glory and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to take a moment just to reflect. So you can use this time to pray or you can scan the QR code that's behind me on the screen And with any questions or comments and one of our staff members will get back to you. So we'll just take a moment before we sing.